On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him. The teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hands into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. A lot of you uh, may not know me. My name is Rick. I'm part of the morning congregation. Um, what I guess you really need to know is that I really love Jesus and it's my great privilege to share with you about him tonight. I love the way that that passage uh, finishes off. Um, the hope that uh, is there in what Jesus says, that he's going to drink this cup um, when he drinks it new in his father's kingdom and as we approach Easter that's the context in which uh, we come to this we know how the story ends that we are here tonight in the presence of the living Christ he is risen that um, although he did suffer on the cross and die he's alive now that's the end of the story but what it took for him to get there. We need to look at this. We don't want to look at it. It would be a whole lot more comfortable if we didn't have to look at the suffering and what Jesus went through. But we need to look at it because then we really understand the victory. Tonight, I want to um, do a little bit of looking into the historical background of uh, this text that we have from Matthew 26. It's the occasion of a, of a, it's a dinner party, um, but it's a dinner party with a, a real history behind it. And I want to look at uh, how not only Matthew, but some of the other gospel writers present this particular evening and then just draw out one theme. There are loads of themes we could look at out of what happened at the Last Supper. But the, the one theme that I want to look at is the theme of loyalty. But let's start with some of the historical background. This meal that they're sharing, this Last Supper, is part of a Jewish tradition which was already ancient in the time of Jesus. For over a thousand years, at the time of Jesus, 
Jews had been celebrating this Passover meal. It's called a Passover Seder meal, and it marks the beginning of the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Now, the Festival of Unleavened Bread is is a week-long annual celebration that begins at sunset on the 14th of the Jewish month of Nisan. Uh, I say at sunset because uh, Jewish days begin at sunset and go through to the following sunset. It's not like our, our days. You know, we begin at midnight and go through. Well, they, they begin at sunset. So on the 14th of Nisan, whenever that day is, it could be any day of the week, it's a particular date. You know how like with uh, Christmas, it's always 25th of December. Anzac Day is always 25th of April. Um, it doesn't shift around like Easter does. Easter Friday is always on Friday, isn't it? You know, Easter Sunday is always on a Sunday. Well, uh, with Passover, it's always on a particular date. Uh, sunset on the 14th of Nisan. When it becomes switches over and becomes the 15th of Nisan, that's the day then when they celebrate this. And what are they celebrating? They're celebrating the liberation of the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt. At the 13th century BC, um, it, it came about that uh, the Jews were in Egypt as slaves from resulting from hundreds of years before there was a very severe famine uh, and this whole family, extended family, went down to Egypt uh, in order to escape the famine that was uh, in Palestine. They grew there, but they became slaves. And so um, this festival of unleavened bread celebrates the time when they got free out of Egypt and started that long journey back to the promised land. So this, uh, the reference to unleavened bread... Um, that is because of the rush with which they had to leave Egypt in the end. Moses had gone to Pharaoh to say, you've got to let my people go out into the desert to worship their God. Pharaoh said, no, that's not going to happen. You know, he suspected them. Uh, and so a plague came and then another plague. In the end, 10 plagues. And the last plague was the most profound of them all. Do you remember what the last plague was? It was the angel of death. And the angel of death went all through Egypt, killing the firstborn in every household. And it wasn't just humans, it was livestock as well. What an incredibly um, deep time of grief that must have been right throughout Egypt. But there were exceptions. The only families that didn't have their firstborn die were the families that had put the blood of a sacrificed lamb on the doorpost of their house. And then when the angel of death came to that household, saw the blood of the sacrificed lamb on the doorpost, that the angel of death passed over that household. That's why it's called Passover. And unleavened is because once Pharaoh said, okay, that's it, you can go and worship your God. After that 10th plague, he'd really had enough. Okay, go, just go. They had to go really quickly. No time to put yeast in the bread to let it rise. They had to make flat bread without yeast. That's why when we have communion tonight, there's there's matzo. Um, Matzo is is a crispy kind of bread. There's no yeast in it, so it's not fluffy. It's flat and crisp. And what we have, the matzo bread that we have, is very, very similar, if not identical, to the kind of bread that Jesus and his disciples would have eaten on that occasion that we read about in Matthew. Unleavened bread. So the unleavened bread is the reference to the 
we've got to get out really quick. We've just got to break bread real quick, get out because of the angel of death. Now this um, Passover meal, uh, it's a very, very carefully structured meal. In fact, the word, it's called a Passover Seder meal and the word Seder means in Jewish, it means order or it could be translated liturgy. So it's a liturgical meal. There is loads and loads of symbolism in this meal. It's not like just like a normal dinner party. You, know, you, you don't just make up the menu. The menu is very set. The order in which things happen is very much set. And it had been that way for over a thousand years when Jesus celebrated it with his disciples. More than 3,000 years now. This is a very structured, ordered, symbolically rich meal. And two key features of that meal are bread and wine. There are other things as well, bitter herbs, there's an egg involved, uh, roast lamb, all that kind of stuff. But bread and wine come up a lot. And it's not just once. There are actually four cups of wine that are drunk through the night. You think, hmm, sounds pretty good, doesn't it? <laughs> um, and so it starts off with, with a cup of wine and then there's some bread. It's not eaten, it's, but it's broken and set aside. And then there's another cup of wine and then bread comes up again and they eat just an, an olive-sized piece of the bread. Um, then the third cup of wine comes up after the, the main course and then there's a fourth cup of wine after Psalms are sung at the end. Sung at the end. So it's very, very structured. And what Jesus does is to take these two really prominent elements of the Passover Seder meal and give them a new meaning. He takes bread and wine and he connects them with his body and his blood. The bread representing his body and the wine representing his blood. Jesus did this, this with some other things as well. He takes an old tradition and gives it a new meaning. So he did that with um, the whole rabbinic tradition. You know, he was a rabbi, but there were lots of rabbis around in his day. People knew what a rabbi was supposed to be and what a rabbi was supposed to do. But Jesus, although he was recognisable as a rabbi, he gave the name rabbi a whole different meaning. He, he really took that old tradition and flipped it. He did the same thing in his understanding of the law. Um, he was very respectful of the law uh, and, and affirmed it. But he, he gave the law a whole new place in the way that we relate to God. The law is good and it reflects God's righteousness and holiness, but it's not the way to salvation. We, we can't save ourselves by obeying the law. So Jesus affirms the law and says, but actually, it's about trusting. It's about trusting me. And Jesus does this with the Passover Seder meal. He gives it a whole new meaning. He draws out bread and wine out of what is already a long tradition and he gives it new meaning, his body and his blood. Now all uh, four Gospels cover this meal closely. Um, John covers it in the most detail. He really draws out the conversation. So uh, the references are in uh, Matthew 26 here that we had read to us, uh, in Mark 14, Luke 22, and then John 13 and 14 certainly, but maybe also 15, 16 and 17 are also part of the Last Supper. There's a little bit of doubt because at the end of, of John chapter 14, uh, Jesus says, come on, let's go. Do they actually go out of the, the room at that point? And is chapter 15, 16 and 17 conversation that happens as they are walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane? Or 
does Jesus continue to talk in that, the room where they'd celebrated the meal? It doesn't really matter. But there's a lot of information in John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, which all relates to that evening and as things kind of unfolded. We know that that particular meal happened on the Thursday night of uh, the week that the Festival of, um, of Unleavened Bread commenced in that year. What's not agreed amongst the scholars is whether Jesus might have jumped the gun and had the Passover meal one night earlier than everybody else. The reason for that uh, doubt is um, because of John uh, chapter 18, verse 28. The chief priests and the elders, uh, their objection to going into Pilate's palace is they say, and this is Friday morning they say this, they say, we don't want to have to go into that palace because that would make us unclean and then we wouldn't be able to eat the Passover. So there's this thought, oh, they're expecting to eat the Passover on Friday night. And Jesus and his disciples have already had the Passover. So what's going on there? There are various theories as to uh, what's going on. Uh, I just want to acknowledge that, uh, yep, there is a question about it, but it's really not that important, folks. There's, there's way more important themes to draw out of the Last Supper and that night than trying to fix exactly what kind of date's going on. Um, because we don't know exactly what year Jesus was crucified, we don't know when the 14th and 15th of Nisan occurred. If we knew the year, we could tell you what day it was. But because we're not exactly sure of the year, there still remains a little bit of uncertainty about that. Jesus uh, gives instructions. Um, he says, Go to the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. In um, uh, Mark and in Luke, we understand, uh, we, we get to hear, uh, Mark and, and Luke tell us that um, actually this certain man was one who was carrying a water jar. And, uh, and the, the man who's carrying the water jar is actually the servant of the person who owns the house. Um, it is a little fun fact that um, a man carrying a water jar would have been noticeable. Because men don't carry water jars, not back in those days. Women carry water jars. Men carry water skins. It's just one of those kind of cultural things. Men carry water skins. Women carry water jars. So there's a man carrying a water jar. So the disciples would have gone into the city and go, ah, oh, that's him then. Because <laughs> there's no, no other man carrying a water jar. And they follow him to this house and, and it, it turns out exactly as Jesus has said, that there's uh, a room that's been prepared, all furnished, all set, ready to go. It's just the meal preparations that need to be done. This is a private arrangement that Jesus has made. The disciples don't know about this because they have to come and ask him. You know, so uh, where do you want to do this? Jesus has it already set up. He, Jesus has actually made loads of preparation for this evening. It says he's eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with them. He's, he's been gearing up for this for a long time. He knows that this is the crunch moment. He knows that the, the vultures are circling. They are going to kill him. He knows that it's, it's only a few hours to go. But, and he's set it up. He knows exactly what he's going to say. He knows where it's going to be. He's got an arrangement in place. Luke tells us that actually it was uh, not all the disciples that went and prepared for the Passover. It was just... Um, John and Peter, they were sent uh, to go and, and do this preparation. 
Why did Jesus have a private arrangement, do you think? There's various theories as to this, but the most convincing thought for me is that uh, Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him and he wants to make sure that doesn't happen too early. He really wants to eat this Passover meal. He doesn't want Judas to know where this Passover meal is going to be held. Otherwise, you know, the soldiers could arrive and you know, he doesn't get to say all the things that he needs to say on the last night he's going to be alive with his disciples. He doesn't get to institute communion. So he's going to keep this secret. He's, he's got an arrangement in place and Judas finds out later on where it's going to be. So Peter and John go off and uh, they make the, uh, the preparations. Now, what does this scene actually look like? If you've got uh, your news about there, you see there's a painting there at the bottom of the, the page that is usually there for sermon notes. Um, I'm telling you to look at it so that you can completely forget it because it, it is so not what would have happened. <laughs> this is Leonardo da Vinci's painting of The Last Supper. Okay, so we've got 13 guys at a trestle table all on one side. Like, what is going on there? (laughs) Jesus in the middle, six each side. Um, Leonardo da Vinci has done lots of very interesting symbolic stuff with the characters, but uh, the scene would really not have looked anything like that at all. For a start, we know everyone would have been reclining on the floor on cushions. This is a really important symbolic part of the Passover Seder meal. You recline on a cushion. They didn't have chairs anyway. But there's, the reclining is important because a free person reclines, a slave stands. And the whole thing about the Passover is to recognise and celebrate they're no longer slaves. They got out of Egypt, out of slavery, into freedom. So they're definitely going to be reclining. They're on the floor on cushions. The table is on the floor. And the table for 13 people is almost certainly in the shape of a U. If you imagine, and they're all on the outside of the U reclining on cushions. Peter and John would have been at the head, the two ends of the U's because they're serving. They've prepared the food. They're going to be clearing away and bringing stuff in and taking it away. So Peter and John are at the, at the, at the head of the U. We know that Jesus is right next to John in the place of honour. He's on, on one side, he's the second one in. And we all know that next to Jesus is Judas. Where the other eight are, or other nine are, we're not sure. But Peter and John would have been at the head of the U, Jesus next to John, Jesus. Well, and the reason that we know that is because of the little conversation that takes place, which uh, is recorded in John. Peter who's on the other side from John, when Jesus says someone's going to betray him, Peter motions. Do you want to maybe read that bit now? Um, This is in John. um, And it's... Chapter... Where's my notes here? Okay, we're at John uh, 13, and uh, starting from verse uh, 21, 
uh, after this, uh, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, okay? He's writing this gospel and that's how he refers to himself. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple. It's kind of like sign language across the table, you know. Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, because he's reclining, okay, John's right next to Jesus, leans back and says, which one is it? Jesus answered, whispering, we imagine, to John, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, who's right on the other side of him. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him, because all of this is whispers. All of this is kind of sign language. Like, what? You know, Peter's going, who, who? John's whispering to Jesus. Jesus is whispering back to John. Little signal. Nobody else knows what's going on. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. (laughs) Very dramatic, isn't it? It was dark in more ways than one. So let's just pull out this theme of loyalty for a moment. There's a lot of things going on in this Last Supper, but you've got the historical background. You've got a scene in your head. Here they are, all together. Jesus is the loyal one here. He's being loyal to his father's call. He's taken the path to Jerusalem, knowing exactly what was going to happen to him, and he has not deflected. He's not turned aside. He's walked every step knowing what's going to happen to him and he says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. He's loyal to his father's call, to his ministry, to lay down his life for us. And he's being a loyal friend to his disciples. Greater love has no one than to lay down his life, he says in uh, John 15. You are my friends. Jesus says to his disciples. So he's loyal to his father and to his call. He's loyal to his friends. He's even loyal to his enemy. You see what's going on there in the exchange between Jesus and Judas? There's actually a loyalty to Judas there. Imagine if Jesus is, you know, when everyone's saying, well, come on, who is it? Who's going to betray you? If Jesus says, it's him. What would happen then? But Jesus actually holds Judas' confidence. He doesn't blow his cover. He allows Judas to make up his own mind. How incredible to be loyal to your enemy. And in contrast, we see three kinds of disloyalty towards Jesus and he predicts them all. And the first disloyalty that he predicts is that Judas is going to betray him. Or someone. He doesn't name Judas, but he knows it's him. And the second disloyalty is that he, uh, he predicts Peter's betrayal. In uh, that 
chapter that we read, Matthew 26, just on from where it was read, Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So this is Matthew 26, 32 I'm up to. After I've risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. But we know what happened. He did indeed disown Jesus three times. So there was the betrayal. There was the denial, the disowning. And there was the, the abandonment by the other disciples. You'll all fall away, Jesus said. And they abandoned him. Except John and the women. The women didn't run away. The men did. He was speaking to the men at the time. But not the women. Because mama doesn't run away. There's a uh, post that Mike Frost, uh, some of you might know Mike Frost, he's a uh, lecturer at Morling Bible College. He was quoting Elizabeth Esther. Uh, this post went up last Friday. He says, have you ever noticed how many times Christians say, Jesus was abandoned by all his friends because no, <laughs> the women never left. The women stayed until his last breath and beyond. A woman was the first to discover he was risen. And like every time a dude is all, you would have denied him three times too. I'm like, nah, bro. By God's grace, I would have been with the other women weeping at the foot of the cross because mama doesn't run away. Mama stays. Mama watches till the very last breath. What I would give if someone preached an Easter morning message about the women who stayed. I'd be a mess of tears if just once the dudes could, be, could de-centre themselves. Like, why is this too much to ask? <laughs> Obviously, Mike is trying to stir up us fellas. <laughs> well, he did a good job with me. I think us blokes ought to think about that. Mama doesn't run away. Do you run away? A lot of the disciples did. He was betrayed, he was denied, he was abandoned. But at the Last Supper, Jesus, the loyal one, in spite of his prediction, his, his absolute conviction that he was going to be betrayed, that he was going to be denied, that he was going to be abandoned, in spite of all that, he calls for our loyalty. And maybe it's loyalty on the other side of disloyalty. Maybe you know we fall in a heap, but he's calling for our loyalty through this Last Supper. That's his, I think, is such a huge theme of the whole night. He's calling for loyalty. The loyal one says, will you be loyal to me? He says, remember me. When you eat this bread and when you drink this cup, remember. You know, the Passover Seder meal had always been about remembering. For over a thousand years, it had been about remembering. But Jesus says, what I want you to remember is not just what happened when the Lord took the Israelites out of Egypt. Remember me. Not even remember the cross. Not just even remember an event or facts. Remember me. 
because it's about a live, real connection, spirit to spirit with the living Christ who's here tonight. And when we take this bread and when we drink this wine, it's about remembering him. Yes, what he did. Yes, what it's achieved for us. Remember him. Will you be loyal to him? Because he's calling for that. The loyal one calls you to be loyal to him, to remember him. Don't forget me. Don't betray me. Don't deny me. Don't abandon me. Be loyal to me, Jesus is saying. And in John chapter 15, he adds, and not only just be loyal to me, but be loyal to my teachings. Keep my commands. I really love it, Ben, that you're going to focus on John 15, vine and the branches at the youth. That is so spot on. Because that is Jesus' powerful message at the Last Supper. He's saying, listen, you can only flourish and bear fruit if you're in me. Be loyal to me. If you're, if you're a branch of the vine, stay in the vine. Then you can bear much fruit. And you do that by keeping his commands. But the other bit of loyalty that he's calling us towards is not only to himself, not only to his commands, but to one another. A big message of the Last Supper, he's saying, love one another. As I have loved you, love one another. Remember at the beginning of the Last Supper, they all file in for, for the meal. And John 13, John tells us what happened. No one's there to wash their feet because that's a slave's job. No one's there to wash their feet. So who washes their feet? Jesus does. The master washes their feet. And afterwards he says, now what's just happened? I, your master, have washed your feet. I've done that as an example for you. So serve one another. He's saying, not only be loyal to him and loyal to his commands, be loyal to one another. When he, uh, in, uh, in Luke 22, when uh, he's explaining to uh, Peter what's uh, going to happen with uh, this betrayal, he, uh, he says to him, Simon, Simon, this is verse 31 of Luke 22, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Be loyal to your brothers, Peter. But what if we fail? What if we mess it up? The loyal one is calling for our loyalty. What if we can't do it? There's a huge contrast between the two people who fail to be loyal. Judas and Peter. Judas fails to be loyal, big time. Betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which he gets from the chief priests and the elders. He gets paid money to lead them to him in the Garden of Gethsemane so they can arrest him and take him off to be crucified. And Judas, well, we read about what happens to him uh, the very next chapter, Matthew 27. From verse 3, When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse 
and return the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I've sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Can you imagine the pain that he's going through, the deep regret, the realisation that he has monumentally stuffed up? This is not just a little mistake. This is massive. And he's done it. He's guilty as sin. What's he going to do? His first thought is, I've got to give the money back. I've got to try and fix this. And the reply? What's that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. Bang! Oh, yes, it is. It is my responsibility and it's killing me. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Judas repented to the wrong people. He was never going to get forgiveness from the chief priests and the elders. He could never fix it by giving the money back. That wasn't going to work. Who should he have gone to? One of my lecturers um, at Fuller Theological Seminary in the States when I was there told us about um, something that happened. He wrote a book about this. His name's Ray Anderson. He wrote a book called The Gospel According to Judas. He was in a a restaurant in San Francisco. He goes into the men's room and there on the mirror above the, the wash basins in blue texter, right across the top of the mirror, it says, Judas, come home, all is forgiven. <laughs> Judas, come home, all is forgiven. So he's thinking, what? Who's written that? Like, is this some kind of father of a runaway kid? Um, what's going on? But then he also, of course, because he's got a, an awareness of the biblical story, he's thinking about Judas, come home, all is forgiven. And he started to think, what would have happened if, say, Judas, instead of hanging himself, had been wandering around Jerusalem in the days after he realised what a complete mess he'd made of things. He's wandering around Jerusalem and he meets the risen Christ. What would that have been like? What would Jesus have said? Well, you can bet that Jesus would have said, Judas, come home. All is forgiven. I was loyal to you at the Last Supper and I'll never change. I'll always be loyal to you. Even if you're disloyal to me, I'll be loyal to you. But it didn't happen that way because Jesus never went to Je- uh, Judas never went to Jesus. He went to the wrong people and he held himself apart. And it ends in suicide. Contrast that. Judas holding himself apart from Jesus and looking in all the wrong directions. Contrast that with Peter. Peter hears the news. The women say that Jesus has risen. The tomb is empty. He runs to the tomb. Why is he running to the tomb? He's God, he's legging it, going as fast as he can because he wants to see Jesus. He knows he's messed up. He's denied him three times. Just like he said, the 
rooster crows and he weeps bitterly. But when he hears that Jesus is alive, he runs towards him. Later on, he's fishing with his mates up in the Sea of Galilee. And John says, it's the master on the beach. What's Peter's first instinctive reaction? Dives in the water, swims for shore. He wants to be with Jesus. And when he does, that's when Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? And those three times, one time for every denial, Jesus reinstates Peter and he finds his forgiveness. He finds his way back because he's run to Jesus. Friends, loyalty is so incredibly important in this story. The loyal one who is met with such disloyalty and betrayal and denial and abandonment still calls us to be loyal to him. And he knows that we can stuff up. The critical thing is, what's your instinctive reaction when you're stuffed up? Are you going to try and fix it? Are you going to hold yourself apart from Jesus? Will you repent to the wrong people? Because that just ends up in a really bad place. Or are you going to run to Jesus? Because you will be welcomed. You may be confronted as Peter was, but you will be welcomed and you will be loved and you will find that the loyal one will always be loyal to you. The Last Supper, so rich in meaning and still speaking today. When we take this bread and we take this wine, Remember, be loyal.